Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. One from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 24th. Today in 1915, the SS Eastland capsized in Chicago and it killed more than 800 people. Here's the story. The Eastland was built in 1902, and it was meant to be a fast ship. It had nicknames like the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes and the Greyhound of the Lakes. Its purpose, originally, was to carry passengers from Chicago across Lake Michigan and then come back to Chicago with produce to sell. It could carry about 2,000 people with sleeping accommodations for about 500 people, and it was a fast ship, like I said earlier, but not quite fast enough to do two round trips a day, which is what its owners wanted to do to be able to make enough money off of it. So it underwent some retrofitting, both to make it faster and to provide more passenger capacity. It hadn't really been reported to have problems before the retrofit, but afterward it had some issues with stability. On July 17, 1904, it almost capsized with almost 3,000 people on board. It also developed a serious list to one side on August 5th of that year. The Joseph Chicago Steamship Company bought it in 1914, and at that point it had a reputation for being somewhat less than stable. It was not a boat people really trusted at that point. Then in 1915, President Woodrow Wilson signed legislation known as the Siemens Act. This act had a lot of provisions that affected lots of different aspects of marine work. A lot of it was the result of lobbying by the International Siemens Union of America. It had to do with things like workplace conditions and working hours and that sort of a thing. But another huge influence on this legislation was the sinking of the Titanic and the perception that a lot more people would have survived if only there had been enough lifeboats. This is actually a much more complicated question. But even so, the general public was demanding that boats and ships have more lifeboats and more life rafts and more ways to get people safely off of a sinking ship. So the Siemens Act mandated that there had to be lifeboats for 75% of people aboard the ships. Now, people who worked with lake vessels like the Eastland that were meant to go across relatively shallow, stable bodies of water like lakes were worried about this legislation. They were afraid all of this extra life-saving equipment was going to make ships that already had a little bit of a tendency to be unstable a lot more top-heavy. It was going to make them a lot more dangerous. But in the end, those concerns weren't really factored into the final legislation. On July 2nd of 1915, the Eastland got its new supply of lifeboats and equipment. And on July 24th, 1915, it was scheduled to make its first fully loaded trip with all of that new equipment installed. It was one of five vessels that were chartered by Western Electric to take employees to a picnic at Washington Park in Michigan City, Indiana, across the other side of the lake from Chicago. But it never left the dock on the Chicago River. It started to tilt as people were boarding, and the crew was not able to compensate by changing the ballast tanks and the levels of water in them. The boat reached capacity at 7.10 in the morning, and then after alarmingly swaying back and forth several times over the next 18 minutes, it rolled completely onto its side at 7.28. None of the life jackets or life rafts that had been added to the boat had been deployed. There had been no time for any of that. 
Some people were able to jump onto the dock from the boat or to scramble up the side as that side was exposed from the water. But a lot of people who were thrown into the river didn't know how to swim and drowned. Almost everybody who was below decks when the capsize happened wasn't able to make it out alive. Most of the at least 844 people who died were factory workers. 22 entire families were killed. The 2nd Regiment Armory had to be used as a temporary morgue, and there were so many people killed that almost 700 funerals took place on the same day, which was July 28, 1915. The American Red Cross, churches, civic organizations all gave aid at the scene, and they helped families make funeral arrangements. There were also court proceedings that went on for years afterwards, but none of them led to any convictions. A civil suit dragged on until 1933, but its terms limited the payout to the salvage value of the Eastland minus the cost to raise it up from the river. So the families of the deceased wound up receiving almost no compensation for this disaster. The U.S. Navy purchased and salvaged the Eastland, and then it operated as the USS Willamette until 1945. You can learn more about this tragedy in the June 28th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class. And you can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Next time, we will have a 19th century invasion during the Spanish-American War. Hello. Welcome to this day in history class where we dust off a little piece of history every day. The day was July 24, 1889. Agnes Meyer Driscoll was born in Genesio, Illinois. Driscoll, a cryptanalyst who broke code during World War II, is known as the first lady of naval cryptology. From 1907 to 1909, Agnes attended Otterbein College in Columbus, Ohio, but she transferred to Ohio State University, where she studied math, physics, music, and foreign languages. She graduated in 1911 with Bachelor of Arts degrees in math and physics. Agnes was proficient in English, French, German, Latin, and Japanese. Once she graduated, she moved to Amarillo, Texas, where she worked as the director of music at the Lowry Phillips Military Academy. She was also the head of the math and music departments at two high schools while she was in Amarillo. In 1918, one year after the U.S. declared war on Germany, Agnes enlisted in the U.S. Navy and was given the rank of Chief Yeoman. She was assigned to the Postal and Cable Censorship Office in Washington, D.C., then transferred to the Code and Signal Section of the Director of Naval Communications, where she remained throughout World War I. The section was responsible for protecting naval communications by encoding America's messages. Agnes got her start developing codes here. She even co-developed one of the Navy's cipher machines, the communications machine, or CM. Once the First World War ended, Agnes stayed with the code and signal section as a civilian. In 1920, she worked in the Department of Ciphers at Riverbank Laboratories in Illinois, which hosted a team of people who deciphered code. She also solved a supposedly unbreakable cipher that was advertised by rotor machine inventor Edward Hebern in a magazine. Hebern hired her to the Hebern Electric Code Company to help develop an improved rotor-driven cipher device for the Navy, but his company ended up failing. 
Agnes also worked in New York at Herbert O. Yardley's Cipher Bureau, an agency that broke diplomatic codes. In 1924, she married a lawyer named Michael Driscoll. That same year, she joined the Navy's cryptographic research desk, later renamed OP-20G, as a crypt analyst under Lawrence Safford. Agnes wrote codes from the Japanese Navy's main operational code book, nicknamed the Red Book. She figured out that the Japanese were encoding their messages using a method called columnar transposition. She also broke the Japanese Blue Book, which also contained super encipherments, or a method that contains code and cipher. In cryptography, a code takes a whole word or phrase and replaces it with another word, series of letters, or string of numbers while a cipher takes a single letter or number and replaces it with another single letter or number. As the Japanese continued to come up with new coding systems, Driscoll successfully cracked them and helped the Navy get insight on Japanese fuel supplies, ship accidents, naval maneuvers, and other secret critical Japanese naval communications. She solved the cipher component of the Japanese fleet's operational code, JN-25 a feat that helped provide warning of Japan's attack on Midway Island. The U.S. Navy was able to fully exploit the code after the attack on Pearl Harbor and for the rest of the Pacific War. Though she was assigned the task of breaking Germany's naval codes, specifically working on the Enigma device, her team was not able to solve the problem. Over the years, Driscoll also mentored other naval cryptologists and intelligence officers, including Thomas Dyer and Edwin Layden. She got in a car accident in 1937, in which she sustained injuries that she never fully recovered from. Driscoll was a principal cryptanalyst for the Navy until the end of 1950. After that, she worked for the Armed Forces Security Agency, later to become the National Security Agency. She retired from active federal service in 1959. She died in 1971 and was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions or comments to tell us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back tomorrow for more delicious morsels of history. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.